science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker. And Liz Neely. And this week, we're presenting stories about mothers and sons. There are so many iconic, and as I'm thinking about it, I'm realizing maybe tragic pairs. <laughs> We've got the great princess of the forest and her son Bambi. Uh, other royals like Princess Diana and Harry, Duke of Sussex. But, yeah, it's a little bit dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can salvage this, I think. Uh, oh, no, wait. It gets worse. Leia Do you remember? Kylo Ren. <laughs> that next <laughs> or, or do you remember the land before time <laughs> uh vaguely yeah there were all these little cartoon dinosaurs and there was one with a long neck and his name was littlefoot and his mother sadly meets her end but she has this this beautiful thing where she says i'll always be with you even if you can't see me <laughs> Now, normally I would not argue with my favorite animated apatosaurus, but I have to inform you, Littlefoot's mother only has this partially right. So, oh. yep, mother cells might always be with their children, but it's a two-way exchange. So sometimes fetal cells leave the womb, go across the placenta, and into the mother's bloodstream. They end up all over mother's bodies, like lungs, spleen, kidneys, heart, even in the brain. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. I, I hear you sounding skeptical. So normally, <laughs> mother's immune systems track those cells down and rid the body of them, but not always. And in 2012, a study came out showing that 63% um, of the brains of mothers had, and these are all mothers of sons, had Y chromosomes, so male DNA, in their brains. Well, what, is is, that, what does that mean? Does that mean well, they're having thoughts like their sons? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean that, but we don't, we don't actually know what it does mean, right? So there's no way to control for this, no way to fix it. And there might even be benefits. Like there's some evidence that it might have a protective effect against Alzheimer's, but then there's also correlations with autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So while I can't tell you everything about it, I can definitely say this is fascinating. You should go check it out if you want and the term for this is the best part. I love it. It's called fetal microchimerism. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. <laughs> I hope everyone enjoys their terrifying Wikipedia rabbit hole. Don't you want to be a chimera? <laughs> so for a totally different take on the life-altering bonds between mothers and sons, how about some stories? Yeah. Our first story is from Ariel Detzer and Avi Kasp. It was recorded in May 2019 at the Centre Phi in Montreal at a show sponsored by Spectrum. Why did you do that? I, I don't know. What were you thinking? I don't know. Why, why do you even do that? I don't know. Just... Stop asking me these questions. I don't know. 
when I was in the first grade, some of the older students in the second grade had cornered me by the bathroom and, well, they claimed that they would be my friends if I pulled down my pants for them. And honestly, I think I would have done this if my teacher hadn't caught me. Because, you see, they tried to claim that it was my idea to, to do this. It was only later that, that my teacher found out what was really going on. But at the time, all I could really say was, I don't know. And at the time, it was true. I really didn't know why I thought this was a good idea. Moms watch their kids. From the first moment we hold them in our arms, we watch for first glances, first smiles, first babbles. But Avi didn't watch back. Five seconds, I read that somewhere. That's normal infant eye contact. But always by the time I got to four, Avi's eyes would slide away. Those years when Avi was a baby felt like a time of holding my breath, counting over and over, not quite to five. Being Avi's mom felt really important. I quit my teaching job to take Avi to therapy four days a week. It felt really important, but it also felt like not enough. I was lonely and isolated. One gorgeous summer evening when Avi was about two, I went with Avi's dad to a gala at our temple. It was on this pier. I could see the lights of Seattle reflected in the Puget Sound. All these couples were dancing. Jewish couples, interfaith couples, gay couples. I love my progressive temple. And I was watching my friend Joan dance with her wife, just like the easiest thing in the world, just so tender. And I was just hit with this wave of longing that just pierced right through me and turned my legs to water. When I was in elementary school, the, the one thing that I remember is wanting to be alone all the time. Like, I just want to be alone and work on my Rubik's Cube in some corner. Or, like, I'd want to escape the school cafeteria. Or, because all the voices of the people talking was just too loud and noisy. Back then, people thought it was really weird for wanting to be alone all the time. I remember watching Avi be alone a lot and feeling like I wanted to help but not knowing how. And the school sure wasn't much help. There was this time right before the end of second grade, I got this message from the front desk person at Avi's school, and I could hear her voice on the answering machine getting louder and higher. And I could kind of hear Avi in the background kind of worked up. And she's going, young man, sit down. I'm going to call your mother. See, I'm, I'm calling her right now. Young man, sit down. Young man, you're making bad choices. I hate that phrase, bad choices. You know, like there's a lot of choice going on in the prefrontal cortex when the amygdala is all flooded. Young man, sit down right now or you're not coming to school tomorrow. Young man, sit down or you're suspended. Young man, sit down right now or you're suspended until the end of school. And the line goes dead. Oh, hell no, you are not suspending my son for a manifestation of a disability. First of all, that is illegal. And second of all, no 
goddamn school secretary without jurisdiction and without due process is making my son miss the last week of school because he wouldn't sit down. <sighs> I didn't have to go all mama bear on the principal because even he could see that the whole thing was ridiculous. But that was one of the easier battles. Then, when I was in the sixth grade, uh, the, our class was assigned to, re to research a social justice issue of our choosing. The goal was to pick something where you could then go on and enact real-world change. But I felt I just couldn't do that if I didn't pick something personally meaningful. When I suggested autism, Avi was really resistant because he felt like it was really negative, really stigmatized. Yeah, back then, the word, the label autism made me seem like a disabled person, or like it was almost like it described someone who just wasn't me. But eventually I decided to research the struggles of, of, gen, of gen ed teachers when trying to teach autistic uh, children in mainstream education. And as I was doing this research, I found out that all the differences I had originally thought were me differences turned out to be autistic differences, like the noisy cafeteria thing, or not wanting to do my homework, because I already knew the concepts, and I didn't feel like I had to prove it to any of my teachers, or... or <laughs> Or when something unexpected would happen, and I'd throw a huge fit, even if it turned out to be something that I really enjoyed. Meanwhile, I'd always felt different, too. But I knew it wasn't just a me thing. I knew there were plenty of people like me right over there on the other side of the dance floor. But that other side of the floor seemed really far away. All the things I was doing to live more of the life I wanted, they, they were great. You know, fighting for Avi's rights in the, in the school system, trips and friends, and the big one, going back to graduate school for my doctorate. They weren't enough. I still felt like I was watching my life from the outside. It was time to take that last big step and leave my marriage and step out on the dance floor myself. When my mom came out, <laughs> It showed me that you don't have to let others define who you are. And, and then another thing happened. She got really interested in my project about teachers and, and about uh, teaching autistics in education. And it got me thinking, maybe I don't have to let others define who I am either. It's true. I started getting really interested in Avi's project and teachers saying they wanted more training. And a lot of the training they do get is focused on managing behavior and not on how autistic kids think differently. Over the next few years, Avi worked with me to develop a series of presentations on autistic processing differences. These presentations became the basis of my dissertation, a teacher training on autistic processing differences. You've got to admit, it's pretty darn cool when you can say that your mother turned your sixth grade project into her dissertation. <laughs> but what was even more important is the way it changed how I thought about myself. 
I no longer thought of myself as a disabled person, but as an academic researcher and scholar. When I was 14, my mom and I went to the uh, Association for Autistic Community Conference, and I was able to give my very first academic presentation about my experiences with bullying and teacher interventions in the public school system. At that conference, I made a conscious decision to change the way I was relating to Avi. Things like, stop asking him to talk quieter, stop commenting on his stimming, and it really opened my eyes to how often I'd been doing it. When, when my mom decided to back off, it truly gave me the freedom to be myself. I was no longer trying to mold my behavior in a way that was acceptable to neurotypicals. Meanwhile, I was way out of my comfort zone. I spent the week in autistic space. In fact, on the last day of the conference, I was one of only three neurotypical people there, so they asked me to be on the Ask a Neurotypical panel. <laughs> and we were having this discussion about uh, disclosing your status at job interviews. And I had this crazy moment of confronting my queer privilege. You know, it's no longer a radical thing to be out in Seattle. I, I don't have to worry about my housing or what my family's gonna say, or even my career. I have clients who seek me out as a queer therapist because I am queer. For me, though, it is still a really big deal to say that I am autistic. For a long time, I used to be afraid to, to share this because I felt it would make me seem like less of a person. Now, however, well, people at my school know they can't say things like, that's so gay, and as an insult anymore. Instead, I hear people saying, ugh, he's so autistic, as a really derogatory thing. And I stand up and say, hey, I have autism, and you're talking about me. In fact, there are even programs like the Microsoft Autistic Hiring Initiative that are specifically looking for people like me because we are autistic. When Avi was a baby and I was counting over and over, not quite to five, with that strange feeling of watching our lives from the outside, I never would have dreamed that this journey of identity would have brought the two of us here today. I am autistic. I am queer. We, we are family. That was Ariel Detzer and Avi Kasp. Dr. Ariel Detzer is a psychologist in private practice in Seattle. Her clinical work focuses on the needs of neurodiverse people and promotes positive identity, self-advocacy skills, behavioral health, quality of life, and academic support. Dr. Detzer did her doctoral research at Antioch University, Seattle, developing a training resource for general education teachers to support autistic students in their classrooms. To challenge the complex pattern-loving part of her brain, she sings with the Seattle Early Music Guild a cappella choir, Sin Nomine. 
Avi Kasp was a high school senior when he recorded this story. He began his autistic activism in sixth grade and made his first academic presentation to the National Association for the Autistic Community Conference in 2014. He focused on how autistic middle schoolers process information in unique ways, which might impact the way that they experience bullying as well as school discipline. Avi is now a freshman at Bellevue College in Washington, where he plans to major in computer science. He enjoys playing Catan and Magic the Gathering with friends, as well as improving his standing on his Rubik Cube scores at World Cubing Association events. Oh, that's so great. Go, Avi. (laughs) I love when we have stories that two people tell together. I just think it's... Yeah, the chemistry is just so great to see. It's hard to do, though, so I have to give Ariel and Avi credit for that. (laughs) Absolutely. Do you have other favorites that you want to shout out from our back archive? Yeah, I would say from the episode Magnetism, the story that uh, Debbie Barabashez and Nara Sherry tell together uh, about their relationship is one of my favorites. They are both physicists who were separated by the whims of academia and found each other again after 13 years. Uh, So romantic. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love stories about people finding each other and then finding themselves together like Ariel and Avi did. It's amazing. Totally. Yeah, I I told a story one time with another person. It was with my partner. And he proposed at the end. So, I mean, sometimes (laughs) it ends especially well. (laughs) (laughs) So our next story today is from Paulette Steves. It was recorded in August 2019 at the Burdock Brewery in Toronto. The theme that night was starting over. So my son, Jesse Blue Steves, was born December 1st, 1977 in Lillooet, British Columbia. Lillooet's rather isolated. It's four hours on dirt roads north of Vancouver. He was an amazing child. He was just beautiful. Thick black hair, dark eyes, really big and really smart. Uh, So when I say smart, some of the first hints were things like, before he could walk, he would crawl down the hall, pile up the blankets, unlock the door, go outside, climb down the stairs, and be halfway over the fence to see the dogs next door in a split second. There were many incidences where he showed his intelligence. But he was also sick sometimes. He seemed to be really sensitive to foods, and he got a lot of um, issues with his skin and not breathing well. So after a year, we were sent out to Children's Hospital. So it's a four-hour drive. It's a big deal to go there. And we'd seen so many doctors. It was like the 99th time. So we went to see a doctor, and they did a lot of tests. And that's when we found out that even on a bad day when he was so young, his IQ was probably 180. Um, He just mystified the doctors. But they did a lot of testing for allergies, all the way from his ankles, all the way up his legs, his back, and his arms. And he was allergic to everything. So the doctor came in to talk to me, and he said he had a look on his face, just absolutely blank, like there was nothing there. And he said he's allergic to a lot of things. He's allergic to milk, to peas, to peanuts, to potatoes, 
to almost every food, to food coloring, to sulfides there in all meat, by the way. He's allergic to a lot of materials, cotton. He's allergic to cats, dogs, horses, birds. He's allergic to everything. He talked about um, the bubble boy syndrome, and he talked about asthma. And then he looked at me and he said, he won't live to be two. That's the last thing a parent wants to hear. I was devastated. So I went home and I began to learn. I learned a lot about allergies, a lot about organic foods, a lot about pesticides, a lot about things in the food chain that we shouldn't be eating. I learned about bubble boy syndrome. Um, I learned how to shop and how to trade for organic foods. I made friends with a lot of hippies that grew their own food. I made friends with anybody that grew their own food. <laughs> God, yeah. Um, so anyways, Jesse did make it to B2, and on his second birthday, we went back to Children's Hospital again for more testing. Um, he was still allergic. He was allergic to even more things. He was still having asthma a lot. He was in the hospital a lot. And um, this time the doctor said he won't make his sixth birthday. I'm looking back now and I'm thinking, their diagnosis was not about my son's illness. It was about me. I was a half-breed parent with a greater education that lived in an isolated community. It wasn't about the disease. Asthma and allergies have been treatable for years, for decades. Believe me, I watched every movie on parents that found the cure for whatever their child had. I read every book. Um, anyways, uh, he did make it to four. And uh, by this time, I was um, a newly divorced single parent with three children, and we moved to Ottawa. And uh, I was thinking that the difference... Uh, being away from a town with a sawmill that he would do better with his asthma and allergies, and he didn't. He didn't do any better. He was still in the hospital every month or two for a couple of weeks. Uh, so when he was 12, the doctors in Ottawa, uh, in front of my son, with, with me in the room, said he won't live. I mean, sorry, when he after he was about eight, they said he won't live to be 12. And he just started crying. He's like, what are they talking about? I said, don't pay attention. They don't know what they're talking about. So I learned a lot. I learned to trade uh, my beadwork for organic meat, for deer, for wild meat. Um, there was a lot of things Jesse couldn't do. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't go to summer camp. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't go to the library. He couldn't eat in a fast food restaurant. There were a lot of things he couldn't do. I was with my children 24-7. Um, because he just really couldn't be left anywhere. It was too dangerous. We always had EpiPens with us. We did get out. I took them to every museum in Ottawa. I homeschooled them. I had to test all the books myself and smell the scents myself to make sure it was something that maybe he could be around because he could open a book and have a severe attack. So um, we kind of got on with living, but I started to think and wonder... They told my child right in front of me he was going to die. They've been telling me for 10 years he's going to die. How do you raise a dying child? There must be people that have done this. Someone must have written a book. I went to the bookstore. Nobody had written a book. They thought I was crazy. What are you talking about? But how do you teach a, a dying child to live? You know, it's, it's a really serious question, and people haven't 
hadn't at that time addressed it. So uh, I learned a lot. When he was 12, he had his dream with vacation uh, to Disney World for terminally ill kids. And that was great. And we came back to Canada and we saw people busking in, um, in Ottawa and their guitar cases were getting filled up with money. That looked really good to me. Like, look at all that money, right? I was a single parent with three kids. Hey, <laughs> I learned the welfare system, but it wasn't easy. So um, I bought myself an old guitar and I taught myself to play. I wrote songs. I taught myself to sing. I bought Jesse a banjo and occasional washboard, and he learned to play banjo. And my younger two children, my, my son Dustin, could turn a harmonica inside out from the time he was four. He was just amazing. And my daughter played a tub bass, and we made a band called the Mother and Child Band. And the first day that we bust in the market, someone gave us 60 bucks, and I think it's because we sounded so bad. <laughs> but, but we got better. <laughs> We felt rich. Wow, let's go eat out. Holy, 60 bucks. So that was a lot of money. So we started busking regularly in Ottawa, in Toronto. We were all over street corners in Toronto. In Quebec City, we started playing buskers festivals, then seniors' homes, and then fairs, and then the Canadian Museum. And then we recorded two cassette tapes, and oh my God, we were living. We were living, we were making $800 to $1,200 a day busking, two to $3,000 for a gig. Oh my God, we were recording, we were buying things, we had money, it was like amazing, we had gas in the truck. We had learned to live because of music. Um, and then one day when Jesse was 14, he got really sick and he didn't tell me. He always, I guess, carried a guilt about the weight that, that his illness put on our family and how it controlled our entire family. So my younger two children kept their little backpacks by the door, packed, because they knew when the ambulance came, we'd be going to stay at the hospital with Jesse. So when he was 14, his lungs burst, and all of the air was coming up under his skin. And we called the ambulance, and they picked him up, and they took off really fast and said they were going to Children's Hospital. I loaded up the kids in the truck to follow the ambulance. It was gone. I got to the hospital, and it wasn't there. He wasn't there. And they said, oh, he stopped breathing. And they stopped at another hospital, and they saved his life. I was like, whoa. Those guys really got a big hug from me when they got there. So that time he was in the hospital for 21 days. And the one thing about Jesse's illness is that he did get better. He did have scar tissue on his lungs. But we met a lot of children that didn't get better. And so I always thought about getting an education and doing something to work with sick kids. And when he was in the hospital this time, we met an amazing, amazing woman, a nurse that changed our life. So I had heard about these amazing places in the States where people could live, where the air was cleaner, where there was more trees and there wasn't as much pollution, and people with Jesse's condition did really well. So I told the nurse about this, but I said, I'm terrified to take him to the States. He gets sick so easy, so many times in the ER, and you know, almost losing him, and we don't have medical coverage. We don't have money, and she said, don't fear. If you learn of a place where he can live, she said, go before he dies. So we did. 
When he got better, we went home and we had a huge yard sale. I was living in New York, I mean, New North York in Willowdale. And I swear Creator just pushed everybody over there. People bought everything from a turtle to a tobacco can. Holy, everything was gone. We sold pretty much everything we owned and took our clothes and Jesse's uh, breathing machines. And off we went on our trip. And we went to... Uh, North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, and every town we pulled into, there was either a paper mill or a sawmill. Like, we'd read about these towns, and they were supposed to be great, but really they weren't, because we'd pull in, and his face would turn red, and we'd know right away, well, we're not living here. So then we headed over to the Ozarks, and if the Ozarks hadn't been good, we were going to head to Arizona. So in the southern Ozarks in northwest Arkansas, there's a town called Fayetteville, and it's a good-sized town, and they had a university. And so we went there, and after a month, he did really good. So we rented an apartment and uh, a little duplex. I got a job at the Tyson Chicken Factory with all the other immigrants from other countries, and I worked there at nights. I homeschooled my kids because of Jesse's illness. So I'd homeschool them in the day, get a few hours sleep, and I'd go work the midnight shift and then come home. And after a year, Jesse had not had one hospitalization. So that was the first time in his life that he actually um, lived without being in a hospital for a year. We were just, we were pretty excited. We had a big celebration. And then he started high school, and my other two children started school. So I thought, well, maybe now, maybe now I can go to college. So I wrote the GED. I really only had a grade 8 education. And I scored really high on everything except math. And uh, everybody knows that story. <laughs> but anyways, I got into school, and I took a job. I, I got my GED, and I got accepted into the University of Arkansas. And I took a job there as a janitor so that for my first year, I could get free tuition. Because if you were a janitor there, you got free tuition. So I'd go, and I walked a couple miles to get there. I walked at 4 in the morning, and I started work usually by 4.30 or 5.00. And uh, then I'd take classes, usually the ones after 11 till 4, and then I'd go gather up my kids, and then I'd go work in a restaurant or a fast food place, and they'd come and sit in the lobby or the back. So I did that for a year, and then I had a pretty much almost four-point GPA. I was doing really good, got into the honors program, so I got a full-ride scholarship. And I was focused on doing uh, pre-med. I thought I was still thinking, you know, I saw so many kids that weren't going to get better, that really needed help, and maybe I could figure out how to help kids like Jesse. So I was focused on pre-med, but I was led in other directions by a Native American tribe from Oklahoma into genetics and anthropology. And uh, so I was focusing on anthropology pre-med. And then in... Um, 1999, I was in my favorite bookstore. It was on the edge of campus, beautiful old southern campus that sort of melted down into the town, edge of campus in the beginning of Main Street. And I would go to this bookstore. It was just small in the front, but in the back, it was just caverns of amazing books. So for me, it was a place of relaxation and respite. I'd go in there and get lost for 30 minutes. And then they had these amazing um, um, sort of glassed-in shelves with nickel candies. Like when I was young, there were penny candies. Well, <laughs> everything changes, so they become nickel candies. So I would get three paper sacks, and I would 
fill them up and I would make one for each of my kids. And so they were just, the kids would get them with just little bags of joy and love and fun. And they just loved them. You know, they didn't cost me a couple bucks each, but they loved them. So I got my bags of candy and I was leaving and Jesse ran up to me just out of the blue. Like he used to come to campus and wait by my janitor's door or leave me notes or flowers. It was really sweet or come and find me. And so he ran up and he grabbed his bag of candy and he said, oh, thank you, thank you. And he hugged him and he said, I want you to promise me you'll never give up. <laughs> he said, no matter what happens to me, don't you ever quit. He said, you're smart. He said, you can do this. Don't you ever give up. He said, be a doctor, be a lawyer. Get your master's, your PhD. He said, promise me you'll never give up. So that day, in February, I promised him I'd never give up. And a week later, he was gone. And that was the last conversation we ever had. I learned a lot from Jesse. I learned to love. I learned to question authority, because the doctors here didn't have it right. I learned to rise above everyone's assessment of me through my whole life. And I grew. I grew from a single parent with three children to a Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation. So I really, I really learned a lot from Jesse. And he passed away in February 1999 by his own choice. He passed away peacefully in his sleep. And it took me a while to figure it out. I was so devastated. It was very, very hard to go back to school, but I had made him that promise that I would never give up. And he came to me in, his, in a dream and he showed me how he felt. And I understood that he was tired. He was tired of not being able to breathe. He was tired of being sick. He was tired of having to always scramble for medicines. And I know that he loved me very much. But he had lived 19 years beyond what the doctors ever thought he would. So I love Jesse so much, and I think about him every single day. And I know that I probably wouldn't be a Canada Research Chair today if I hadn't made him that promise on that street corner that I would never give up. That was Paulette Steves. Paulette was born in Whitehorse, Yukon Territories and grew up in Willowette, British Columbia. She is an Indigenous archaeologist with a focus on the Pleistocene history of the Western Hemisphere. In her research, she argues that Indigenous peoples were present in the Western Hemisphere as early as 60,000 years ago, possibly much earlier. Dr. Steves has taught anthropology courses with a focus on Native American and First Nations histories and studies and decolonization of academia and knowledge production at Binghamton University, Selkirk College, Fort Peck Community College, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and Mount Allison University. 
She is currently an assistant professor in history at Algoma University and is Canada Research Chair in Indigenous History, Healing, and Reconciliation. Paulette, we're so thankful that you shared your story with us. Yeah. It's going to stick with me for, well, forever, honestly. The Story Collider is so grateful to Ariel, Avi, and Paulette. We are also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do it without Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Ari Daniel, Misha Gajewski, and Jesse Hildebrand. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, John Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Center Phi and Burdock Brewery for hosting these shows. And to Littlefoot and Ducky <laughs> and Sarah and Spike. <laughs> the, whole, the whole cast of Land Before Time. <laughs> Shout out to all of you. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks.